political leaders in Turkey keep testing the limits of their country's democracy. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how a new generation has become energized to let their views be heard. If you don't stand up for our rights now, then our sons will have to do it in the future. So that's our responsibility. In ancient times, mythology took a hit when the Greeks turned to people power. Hercules was the son of Zeus, and he was a symbol for aristocrats. He was a symbol of power. He was a symbol of people who had the right to that power. The moment democracy was introduced, Hercules disappeared. And the Dutch value efficiency and self-reliance in their society. We'll hear why they consider a no-nonsense attitude a virtue. Because you really know what you're going to get. An insider's guide to Holland, understanding the sites of Greek mythology, and a personal view of politics in Turkey. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Wherever you travel in Greece, you're never far from an important ancient site. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll look at some of the places you can visit that are rooted in Greek mythology and what the gods of antiquity can still teach us. We'll also look at the sites and personality of Holland, where the virtues of European-style efficiency and self-reliance are at the center of everyday life. We're at 877-333-RICK or by email radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start with a personal look at the politics of Turkey. It's a country that its Western allies have held up as a democratic model for other majority Muslim nations. Violent protests at Istanbul's Taksim Square dominated international news in May of 2013. Thanks to social media, the world witnessed the heavy-handed treatment of protesters who were trying to save Gezi Park, a rare spot of green in the heart of Istanbul. What Prime Minister Erdogan dismissed as a few looters grew to probably three and a half million people protesting his policies in nearly a hundred cities across Turkey. Last year, Erdogan became the first president of Turkey elected by popular vote, thanks to conservative and corporate support. Yet his actions and decrees continue to stoke populist displeasure. Also last year, Yaren Turkoglu shared with us her first-hand account of protesting in the streets of Istanbul. She's joined today by fellow tour guide Thailand Tasbashi, who also took part in the protests. They'll update us on their views of the political scene in Turkey. Yaren, Thailand, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So the government was going to yes. take away a park that the people of Istanbul loved, and so many thousands of people demonstrated against this, yes. and, and you were right there. What was accomplished from all of this? Did the government hear you? I think they heard us. I think, you know, it was a lesson that we taught to the government. Did the government end up building the mall that it wanted to build? We thought that they canceled, but it's uh, now we know that they're just holding it. So you have an ongoing uh, challenge here with your government, it sounds like. Exactly. Are you comfortable talking about your government's policy here in American press? I am. I am very comfortable about it. Yes, I'm comfortable too. So tell us about your president, Erdogan. (laughs) I find him very oppressive suppressive, actually, you know, and Mm -hmm. he has these authoritarian issues. And I'm very concerned about the future of my country. So for a person that loves democracy, you're concerned that... Yes, he wants to be the only person who decides everything on behalf of everybody. So, Thailand, who supports Erdogan? Why would somebody vote for him? So, basically, what he did in his early years when he was elected 12 years ago, he made up a group of people that started owning big companies, such as media companies. Okay, so he's speaking for industry. Exactly. So he built his own industry but in that Turkey, will support himself. In Turkey, you've got a strong Islamist uh, of course. sentiment. Well, when it comes to the people who are supporting, uh, we can definitely say that they are coming from a more conservative and more traditionalist section Would a president like Erdogan, who has an agenda, would he combine the interests of the Islamic people and the big business interests in a way that makes it possible for both of them to have their their way? Definitely, as you said. That's, so what that's an doing. interesting trick, isn't it? To yeah. take the big business interests and to take the religious interests and put them together. Is it fair to say you're both modern, secular Democrats? Yes. Pluralistic? Yes. yes. You believe in separation of mosque and state? Definitely. Yes, definitely. Separation of mosque and state, is that a challenge in Turkey? Or does everybody say, well, obviously? It's a challenge in Turkey. Not everybody says it's obviously. Can you imagine a, a theocratic Turkey, a, a Muslim government in Turkey? 
I don't imagine that, but I'm afraid that the country comes to be more and more conservative, and it's dangerous as that. So as it becomes more conservative, it's yes. likely to become more theocratic and, and more like we would see in Iran. Uh, well, I, I actually reject okay. that point. What do you think, Thailand? I think ignorance is uh, getting much more common, especially among a generation. In the past 10 years, they've been changing the education system so much. Like every year they've been doing something else. So, so they're messing up the education. That's what it's I causing a, a less sophisticated electorate and they can be uh, used fear against them to vote for more Islamic politicians. That's what I'm afraid. That's a, a fearful thing. Now you're both highly educated Turks. It must be frustrating for you to see that trend in your country. Plus we both have kids and Definitely. Uh, we're just thinking about what we should do, and we should be showing up and raising our voice. So that's why you both hit the streets in Istanbul. Definitely. In a nutshell, you've got a future, and you want to defend uh, secular pluralism. If you don't stand up for our rights now, then our sons will have to do it in the future. So that's our responsibility. You know, there's so much happening in Turkey. If you can just help me quickly. In the United States, we read about ISIS and this new caliphate and, and brutal tactics. And this is from the United States. That's far away. But for you... It's just over the border. It's like California and Mexico. What's your take on ISIS? Is it a threat to Turkey? Is it helpful to Turkey to have ISIS to take care of Kurdish issues? Or Tell me a little bit about ISIS. Well, uh, first of all, ISIS was something that we didn't hear about until recently, maybe 10 months ago, we started hearing about ISIS. Before that, it was only freedom fighters in Syria that was fighting against their own government, Assad, hmm. from Turkish point of view, we have more than 2 million refugees in Turkey from Syria right now. So this is the impact of ISIS on Turkey, is 2 million refugees. Does ISIS make a threat for Turkey or just a, a problem for Turkey? I think the biggest impact of ISIS in Turkey is the refugees. The refugees, because that's an economic burden. It's a huge burden on Turkey. And you cannot just ignore the refugees. So no, from we a humanitarian cannot. point of, of view, course. you help them, but who pays for it? Definitely. The people of Turkey. Mm, yes, we pay for it. It's, it's hard to imagine the complexity of all when you live right in that area. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests, Yaren Turkoglu and Thailand Tasbashi, lead American visitors on tours of Turkey. They're letting us in on some of the political issues they're facing as citizens of Turkey. You're both in the tourist industry. Do you fear that people will be, a, you know, reluctant to go to Turkey because of what's in the news? We do have a concern that uh, they read the news. What would you tell somebody if they see the news and they think, ah, I don't know about this? There. That's how we feel about when we watch the news about other countries. But I think by the time the tour members arrive in Istanbul and when we begin our tours, many of them see that it's as safe as another big city. So you're saying if you read the newspaper about another country, it seems frightening for you to go there. Definitely. And then when you actually go there, you realize, well, the news made it a little more scary than it really is. Of course. We just got an email here from Sally in Akron, Ohio, and she said... There was a suicide bombing on Sultanahmet Square just recently when a female tourist detonated a bomb she was wearing, killing herself along with a policeman. Are these acts becoming more common in Turkey? And uh, what are people like this protesting? Why would this woman blow herself up? We actually still don't know. We don't uh, know the they're, connections. They're still investigating, but we know that she's from Russia. She might be having some radical Islamic terrorist organization connections. It was against the police station. It was not against the tourist attraction. So this is interesting because Erdogan is inclined to be more fundamentalist Muslim, but the terrorist threat is coming from fundamental Islam. Definitely. You would think a leader who wants stability in his country would stand against the radicalization of people who are religious in his country. Well, first of all, let's clarify something. Istanbul is statistically one of the safest metropolitan cities among the other European cities. Mm -hmm. And the recent uh, bombing was also a, a big surprise for us, uh, which was normally the area where the bombing happened is one of the safest locations in the whole city. Sultanahmet Square, yes. that's exactly. where all the tourists like are. When, during the demonstrations, it was still... Very safe Very point. Safe. Well, I would think the police would be sure nothing goes on there exactly. because the tourism is important for exactly. the economy. But I think we have to remember Istanbul is a city of... 17 million, 17 probably. 17 million people. And if something happens, it doesn't mean suddenly the city is not safe. I mean, there's people being killed every day in, in Chicago and New York, and it doesn't make headlines. So as travelers, 
We have to be smart and reasonable, but we don't want to overreact to the news. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking politics in Turkey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jordan's calling in Atlanta. Jordan, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. So my wife and I spent three weeks renting an apartment in Istanbul, kind of during the heat of the real tax in the square protests. Uh-huh. And from our perspective, I mean, there, there really wasn't a huge impact for tourists visiting Istanbul. There was one night we'd gone an evening stroll up the Itztiklal to Desi every night, which, you know, is the main pedestrian thoroughfare up um, in Istanbul lined with shops and restaurants and lots of people. And one night we just saw a crowd of people running towards us. So we duck into an alleyway and we see the people run by and a police riot tank comes barreling down the street, spraying water cannons everywhere. And once that cleared out, everything was kind of back to normal. And that was really our only experience with the protest. And you were in Istanbul during this period. Were your loved ones at home uh, comfortable with you being there? You know, our parents were because that's what parents do. <laughs> but kind of like you said earlier, right, only the really bad news gets reported elsewhere. We were abroad while we had this rash of mass school shootings going on in America. And everyone asked us, oh, do you feel safe, you know, returning to America soon? And I said, you know, of course I do. These are few and far between. So you know, it's just an example of only the bad news getting reported wherever you are. You know, that's kind of the measure of, of, is it safe to go there? Flip-flop it and think, oh, you know, we just had this school shooting in America. Is it safe to go to America? Well, well of exactly. course it is. And other people would be surprised that Americans are actually staying home for safety reasons. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell people, you know, when I'm abroad, 99% of the time, I feel safer walking around at night than I do in my own hometown of Atlanta. You know, I think that's very important to remind Americans. Thanks, Jordan, for your call. Thanks, Rick. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Thailand Tasbashi and Yaren Trukoglu about traveling in Turkey and the political environment there right now. Thailand, what's the best thing that's happened lately politically in Turkey? I think people started uh, realizing that, especially after the demonstrations, we realized that we can actually change things. It's not only politicians who are changing things, it's real people. Yaren? I think many people, after the Gezi Park protests, many people began to believe in direct democracy. Yeah. Yes, we vote, but we also have to do something. And you're speaking as patriots, talking about the, the value of democracy and how people need to speak out. Yes. Best That's wishes. We'll stay tuned for Turkey. You. And I'll tell you, every time I go to Turkey, I'm so thankful that I'm not afraid of the headlines and I go over there and get to talk to wonderful people making history. Thank you. Thank you. Nobody should be, actually. No. It's a great place to travel. You can listen to Yarn's visit with us from March of last year as she describes what it was like to join the demonstrations in Istanbul. Look in the Travel with Rick Steves archives for program number 359. Next, we look back on the social order of the ancient Greeks and what the sites associated with Greek mythology can show us today. Then, we get an insider's guide to Holland. 877-333-7425. That's our number on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. When we travel in Greece, it seems everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, there's some story that dates back to centuries before Christ, the old Greek mythology. It's really important to understand the Greek myths in order to understand your sightseeing. 
Right now we're joined by Anastasia Gaetanou from Thessaloniki in Greece to talk about Greek mythology and how that relates to our sightseeing. Anastasia, thanks for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. As a tour guide, how do you help your travelers get a handle on the importance of the pantheon of gods and, and Greek mythology in their sightseeing? Well, the first thing I do is I try to explain two very important things. One thing is mythology for us is a myth. That's what mythology is, is a, is a story, is like a fairy tale. But for them back then, it was their actual history and religion. That's what they believed in. They believed that these gods existed. So that's one thing that's important. And the other thing is I always try to compare it with religions of today, usually Christianity. And the main difference is that the Christian God, for example, is eternal. He's flawless. He existed before time, he exists and will exist after the end of time. While the ancient gods were nothing like that. They were either born or created. They had the same passions and flaws as man did. They did the same mistakes and they were the justification of what people were doing. They were a reflection of modern society of back then on a divine level. So if you understand that, but of course, again, they would set the moral boundaries. They would say what was allowed and what was not, but even gods would try to do what was not allowed for them. So that makes for much more interesting storytelling, I think. Very, a lot more interesting storytelling. But when you understand that, then you can understand a lot more of how the ancient world worked and what these ruins that you see today looked like a lot better in what they stood for, because there is always a religious a social and a political message in most of those ruins. And I think that's the fascinating thing about it. So what's one example, Anastasia, when you're traveling around Greece, if you're looking at something that is, you know, a statue of some great god or goddess, and how, mm-hmm. how it would have some sort of a moral or a meaning? Well, a statue. I'll try to explain the story behind it and what the statue stood for, because I believe that art is the reflection of what happens in a society on a political, historical, social level. So if you take a really a closer look to art of each period, then more or less you know what's happening. Like I'll give you an example. We see statues of Hercules. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the Roman time period. That's a different thing. Mm-hmm. But let's say you see statues of Hercules. Hercules was the son of Zeus. And he was a symbol for aristocrats. He was a symbol of power. He was a symbol of people who had the right to that power. The moment democracy was introduced, Hercules disappeared. There are no statues of Hercules after that. Nothing. Because the symbolism behind him is completely different. So that's one example. So Hercules was, uh, if I understand correctly, a demigod. Not a god, but a kind of a half-human, half-god. Yes. Would he be uh, a character that aristocrats would embrace to kind of justify that they have more rights and more power than normal people? Absolutely. So you said Hercules disappears when there's democracy. Yes. And Hercules was a a demigod, half a god. Yeah. Being the son of a god then makes you immediately a symbol, especially when your labors then have to do with humans. You save humans. Also, Hercules was, from the beginning, was going to become the ruler of all mankind. Just Hera intervened. And that did not happen. So from the beginning, he was going to be the mightiest and the strongest. And at the end of his life, he does manage to get to Mount Olympus and earn the status of a god. So he's very important to the aristocrats. So he joins the banquet up there on on Mount Olympus. He does join it, and he joins it as the son of Zeus. And if I may say so, Zeus is the boss of them all. So it's very important. You have the son of the boss, practically. Right. As a, as a student in Greece, do you learn these stories just like we would learn? I mean, of course, they're, they're myths, but do you learn them in order to better understand your country and its heritage? We learn them, yes. You we have do. to learn them. In primary school. In primary school. Mm-hmm. As travelers, when we're traveling around the country, I love to go to these sanctuaries and these incredible places that were so important, you know, 500, mm-hmm. 800 years before Christ. Do you think the people really believed this stuff, the, the leaders of Greece, or were they using that to keep the people down? Both. I think it started really with faith, or I believe they really did believe in that. But when you have a great religious site that attracts a lot of people out of various reasons, then you really make a profit at the end because that's a huge festival. So during the centuries, it became more from a religious festival, more business. So more take advantage of it if you were an insider. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki in Greece. We're talking about Greek mythology and how it relates to our sightseeing. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Alina is calling in from uh, Weiden in Germany. Alina, thanks for your call. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be a part of this today. Great. Do you have a comment or a question for Anastasia? We do. My husband and I are going to be taking our two young children to Crete this summer. And um, it's going to be their very first trip. Um, we've just adopted the summer from Washington State, so they're brand new to Europe, brand new to travel experience. Um, but we really want to get them excited about Crete and what we can do there. So we're curious if there's any great mythology that we can get them excited about before we go and then places that we can visit once we get there. For Crete? Yes. Okay. Anastasia? So definitely, yes, there are. Hi. <laughs> Crete has to do with the story of Europe itself. When Europe was uh, a wonderful princess, was abducted by Zeus, they were together on the island of Crete, and their first son was the first son of Crete, who was Minos, by the way. So from Europe, from that beautiful princess, and the name means the one with a beautiful face, and the whole continent got its name. So that, that's a good way to relate where you are to the story of the place where you're going. So that's, that's a beautiful story. And then, of course, you also have the story of the Minotaur, who was not really the son of Minos, but you can tell that there is part of this name in the name of Minotaur, but he was born by the wife of Minos. He was half a bull. That's what Taurus means, the Minotaur. And he was banned in the labyrinth that was built for him, killed by Theseus of Athens. But today in Crete, there are the ruins of one of the great palaces that date back to the middle of the second millennium BC, and that is the Palace of Knossos, Knossos, actually in Greek. And it's believed that that is the great labyrinth everybody was talking about. Most probably a labyrinth like a maze never really existed, but the palace was built in a way, even today you Mm. can see it in the ruins, that looked like a maze. You can really get lost (laughs) in those corridors. And, um, so one if, if Alina yes. is traveling in Crete with her family, you're saying uh, the Palace of Gnosis is the most important Knossos. site? Knossos yeah. is the most important site. And that Absolutely. dates, I think it's amazing to think that that goes, it's a thousand years older than the classical age Greece. Yeah. It's from 14, 1500 BC. And even older, the first phase. Wow. Alina, that sounds fun for the, for, to introduce your children to. It does. I'm excited about that. Thanks so much for that hint. Thanks for you're your welcome. call. I know. Thank you. Billy's calling from Yukaipa in California. Billy, thanks for your call. Thank you. The thing that was most interesting to us on Crete, we, we spent quite a bit of time on, in Greece and traveling around, and the thing that was most interesting to us was the palace, Kadosos. Uh, the history is, is quite complex, but the main thing about it is that I had studied for several years with a women's group about going on pilgrimage and all, and this was one of the areas that we had talked about a lot. So it was just very special to me to be able to go there and, and see the palace ruins. And Billy, I'm, I'm curious what you saw at the palace. What made it such an interesting visit for you? One of the things that was really interesting was that you could still see a lot of the very colorful things, some of the, the fresco-type paintings, and there are these red posts that held up. It was, the palace was in layers, and, and you know the minotaur was supposed to be down in the labyrinth, the bottom of the labyrinth, and the whole story of Ariadne who saved Theseus. And, but I, I thought it was very interesting because you could really see the, uh, the way they stored food. There were these big uh, jars of things still there, and that's how they stored their oil and their grains and things like that. And you could just, you know, you could walk around all the different ups and downs around the palace. One thing that really struck us, though, about uh, about that was that I pictured it in my mind that it would be out, kind of, you know, out of town, and there would be maybe a grassy area around it or something. But it wasn't true. We we left the airport and went straight there from the airport, and. I knew where the address, and so we we were driving and driving, and we kept seeing you know buildings and little restaurants and cafes and hardware stores and things like that. And then just bam, right there was the palace at Knossos. It's just right in the town of Heraklion, and it, that was just an interesting thing to me. And we noticed that all over Greece that you know we think of these things as such honored pieces of their past, and you know even in the, the major cities 
the beautiful big columns and monuments and the architecture and the amphitheaters and everything are just right next door to, you know, the place where you go and buy your stamps and, (laughs) and, you know, eat out and things like that. And it's interesting that they did not protect those areas. I mean, it it makes it just kind of interesting to us because, you know, we tend to have a big piece of property around something like a cathedral or something like that. It's all mixed together there, isn't it? Did you find, when you went to Kenosis, were you there just on your own? Did you buy a guidebook? Did you take a tour? How did we you understand? Just there, we had your guidebook, but we, mm-hmm. and we, we just go on our own. We, we do quite a bit of traveling independently and, and do some tours and things, but we just drove, and there's a parking okay. lot, and you can walk up right to it. And uh, another area on Crete also has some, um, not as well known, but just hundreds of these grave sites that was, um, I believe they said was even in the book, I believe it said they were even older than Canosos. Uh, and you could walk down, they were buried underground, but they had these little tunnels that went under there, and you could walk down into those. And, and that was a real interesting okay. site, too. I think that's important uh, to put Crete on our list. Thanks for your call, Billy. You're welcome. Thank okay, you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Our guest, Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki, has been a certified tour guide in Greece since 1996. She's our guide now to the sites of Greek mythology on Travel with Rick Steves. Anastasia, when you travel around Greece, there are five or six very important sites. Uh, I'm just going to list them here. If you can explain to us the importance uh, and what we might do there, just very, very briefly. Olympia. Olympia, the cradle of the Olympic Games, main sanctuary of Zeus. From uh, the, the very first games there, when was the first uh, games? In 776 BC. And can you actually... The reorganized games, I mean, they were older. And you can actually see the, the stadium? and, and so You can see the stadium, absolutely. You can see the sanctuary itself. And of course, we should never forget that all these sanctuaries had a political function as well, all of them. Now, Delphi. Delphi was the sanctuary of Apollo and simultaneously an oracle that played a very important role in politics because especially when Greece had a big demographic problem and they asked the oracle of Delphi where should they go to establish their colonies, they would tell them where to go. So what is an oracle? An oracle is a place where you can ask a god and via medium, in this case it was a woman, the god talks through the people and gives an answer, which of course is cooked by the priesthood. So the 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 medium would be the person who's doing the translating who could be corrupted by the priests or the priest could misinterpret for the priest's interest? Well, to be honest, the medium would talk nonsense. The priest would decide how to interpret that. Okay, so there you go, the oracle, when the gods would speak to the people and then the priests would say what's going to happen. Epidavros. Epidavros was um, one of the public hospitals in quotation marks of ancient times. It was a sanctuary of Asclepius, who was the god of medicine. And these were the places where everybody would go to find sanctuary and healing. And apart from that, it had one of the most beautiful theaters of the Mm -hmm. ancient world. And already back then, it was known as the one with the best acoustics. Incredible acoustics. How many people could go to the theater? How many people? Well, 12,000 definitely. 12,000. If you sit very tight to each other, even 14,000. The most important thing is that the theater is very well preserved till today. And till today, there is the Epidaurus Festival, and you can go there in the summer and see a play. Nice. It's wonderful. The three sites we just mentioned, Olympia, Delphi, and Epidaurus, are all within two or three hours' drive of Athens. And I find also very interesting that sometimes today, because we're so based and dependent on our technology and what we can do, is we can't understand how these people managed to to build all these great constructions. But I think it's very interesting to see how people, for example, in the 5th century BC, could not understand how their ancestors in the 8th century or in the 2nd millennium BC did what they did. Of course, the explanation back then was a lot more easier. You know, giants with one eye, the Cyclops came and did it. I love that. And you're thinking specifically about the palace in Mycenae. For example, yes. And the people would call that uh, Cyclopean architecture, just because they couldn't imagine some man carrying those big stones. Exactly. So when you go to Mycenae, I just always think, wow, Mycenaeans were a thousand years before Socrates and Plato. And they would go down there and they would see the remains of this palace and they would see those huge stones actually, I guess, bigger than what the Greeks were using, and they just shook their head and thought, no human being could do this. Yes, because they did not have the technological means that they had, so they could not understand or comprehend how would someone, without having this crane that they had in the 5th century BC, could pull something like that off thousand years before that. So they attributed it to giants. If you go out into the Aegean Sea, 
What single site would take you back to classical Greek times? Oh, well, it's full of sites, but yeah. I, I can mention two, three. Like Delos, of course, which was the island on which Apollo, the god of light and music, was born. So the whole island was a settlement and a sanctuary, and today the whole island is an archaeological site. It's Now, small. Delos is small and, I believe, uninhabited, so you side yeah, trip there from, from Mykonos, right? Yeah. So when you go to Mykonos, you can go to all the parties and the beaches, but then your one obligatory site would be to take the little boat over to Delos. Absolutely. It's wonderful. And you have Samos, where Hera, the wife of Zeus, was born, and there was one of the largest, biggest temples of antiquity, 7th century B.C., Naxos, Temple of Apollo, still the frame of the door is standing, one of the most beautiful sites. And then you have um, Tinos again, you have Apollo, you have Rhodes, where Athena was Amazing. one of the ma yeah. most important sites. There is her temple and, and the, the ruins of the castle. There's and, a lot. And a wonderful development, I think, in the last generation has been the establishment of, of beautiful, in many cases, state-of-the-art little museums on each site to save That's the beautiful true. carvings from the acidic air and give us a comfortable place to visit with a more intimate look, the wonders of those civilizations. Also because we believe that you can never fully understand the meaning of an object or an artifact unless you see it where it was made or found. That is such an important point. It's so exciting mm -hmm. to go actually to the place and then have the museum right there, a chance to wander through the grounds and follow it up with a look at the now-protected artifacts exactly. of that amazing civilization. Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki, thanks so much for helping us better appreciate that to understand Greece, you really need to understand the mythology. Thank you for giving me the chance to do so. Take us to the places that impressed you the most in your travels in the form of a haiku poem. You'll find instructions for sending us your original haiku in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Here are some entries that our listeners have sent recently that we thought you might enjoy. Lee Wegman from Clarendon, Ohio, has BrewDroid as part of his email address. So it's no surprise he sends us this haiku after a trip to Germany. Sitting with new friends. Vice first, pretzel and a beer. Breakfast in Munich. John Hughes is from Glasgow, Scotland. He composed this haiku at a bar while visiting Farmington, New Mexico. To me, exotic. The only non-Apache in here, being from Scotland. And Brad Sargent from Springfield, Oregon, sends us this haiku after a three-week trip to Japan. He says that when they arrived at Narita Airport, a gowned and masked medical team boarded the plane, scanned all the passengers for fever, and passed out medical masks. Welcome to Japan. We like you, but not your germs. Please put on the mask. Coming up, get ready to visit the land of Gouda cheese and Stroopwafels, Rembrandt and Vermeer, and a no-nonsense egalitarianism. We get an insider's view of Holland, plus your calls at 877-333-7425. Learn what makes Holland distinctive from the rest of the Netherlands, next on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. My very first day in Europe was in the Netherlands, and back in the 1970s, when I started taking Americans on bus tours around Europe, I always made a point to start right there. The tidy, compact way Dutch society organizes itself makes it a leading example of European efficiency. It's a fascinating place to get to know, from the rise of the Dutch Republic back in the 17th century to its role at the heart of today's European Union. Much of what we consider typically Dutch comes from the two powerhouse provinces of the Netherlands. That's the area they refer to as Holland. It includes all the action of the country's largest cities, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and The Hague. Angelique Mergler was raised in the historic city of Delft. She makes her living guiding visitors around Holland and joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. Angelique, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, Angelique, this is a point of confusion for a lot of Americans Is it Holland or is it the Netherlands? What's the difference between the two words? Well, there's a lot of differences, actually, because 
As you've been saying, Holland is consisted of North and South Holland. It's the two main provinces. And the Netherlands was built in, in the 16th century as the first republic in the world. And Holland was the, the area which was the most powerful in that republic. Consequently, most of the important classic Dutch sightseeing would be in the most important section of that country, and that would be what is Holland. How many provinces are in Holland altogether? Twelve. Twelve, and two of them are North and South Holland. Yes. But that's less than half of the territory, isn't it? Yes. But I think the majority of your sightseeing is likely to be in Holland. Yes. So when we refer to the Netherlands as Holland, that's really not accurate, is it? No. No. It was like calling the United States Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, people will know what you mean. They know what you mean, but it's nice for us to know yes. that the uh, historic core of the country, you could say, is yes. North and South Holland, and we can call it Holland, and it's everything is within an hour of a train ride or a drive from Amsterdam. Yes, yes. Now, when we think of Holland and, and land below sea level, we've got this whole vision of reclaiming the sea. And there was a big inland sea, or a big desider sea, right? Yeah, the idea was just to make money, I guess. <laughs> they wanted to put cows on it and have agriculture on the land. And so you had also, a big bay that came in, and, and there was a lot of dunes and islands, and they could lace those dunes and islands together and, and shut off the sea. Yes, yes. And then pump out the water. They put dikes around it, actually, mm -hmm. and then they just started pumping. And in some areas, they, they pumped out the water and... There was a meter of fish lying just there. Just <laughs> so you can imagine. Like draining the sea and there was just yes, fish left. Yes, yes. And it so. changed the economy because these were towns that were trading all over the world. Yes. Dutch East India Company and, and great fishing towns and suddenly they're landlocked. Yes. And it's sort of like time warp. All of a sudden the industry is finished and you have a, a little town that's trapped in the past. Yes. Marken is a very popular tourist town just mm -hmm. half an hour north of Amsterdam, M-A-R-K-E-N, and... It's quite touristic, but I find it's really beautiful. And it has a, a feeling that it was important at one time, and then suddenly it's it's a little island in the middle of a lake instead of yes. a, a fishing port on the ocean. Yeah, that's what happened, basically, yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Angelique Merkler, and our phone number is 877-333-7425. Teresa's on the phone in Seattle. Teresa, thanks for your call. Hi. So, Angelique, I was really surprised. My son lives in Rotterdam, and I was really surprised at how big that port is. We took a port tour, and it goes on and on forever. Mm. And all these little side channels. I'm from Seattle, and we have a port, but our port is 100th of the size. Yes, yes, it's a very big port. It used to be the biggest, but I think that has changed now with India and all the other countries. But it's still emerging. one of the biggest and one of the it's, top yeah, in the world. It's and, top and, uh, five, yeah. Teresa, you took a, I took that same tour. That's quite an interesting boat ride through the port, isn't it? Yeah, and there are, what, three oil refineries in their port? I mean, it's that kind of huge. And can you and imagine yet, it's all sea level, and what they've got is this storm surge protection barrier, mm -hmm. and I was just visiting this thing. It's the, what is the name of it? The Moss... Maslandkering. The yeah. Maslan Storm Surge yeah. Protection Barrier, yeah. and it's like two arms of this thing that are each as big as the Eiffel Tower laying down that are on wheels, and it's like two Eiffel Towers coming together when necessary, to stop the sea from surging in and sinking Rotterdam. And as you're going along on the boat, there's all these ports, and then there are windmills. So this is such an interesting combination. Now, are you talking about modern windmills or old windmills? Yeah, well, no, old windmills. I like the old windmills right next to the modern windmills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like they're not beginners at this. The Dutch know how to harness the wind and pump that water. That's right, they do. Were you staying in Rotterdam, actually? Yeah, we did. We've stayed in Rotterdam a couple of times. Our, our son lives there. So. Oh, I was going to say, because most tourists don't stay in Rotterdam, but you've got a son there, so that would be We've got the a son reason. There. A tourist would want to stay in Delft, which is just 10 or 15 minutes away, and then you could side trip over to the big city. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's an amazing city. All that modern, beautiful architecture, it's, you know, they were yeah. completely bombed and... That's true. That, that the, the Germans just, like, destroyed Rotterdam, yeah. and then they said to the Dutch, do you want to uh, surrender? Yeah. And the Dutch said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, that's how the Germans did it, I think. They just yeah. destroyed Rotterdam. Yeah. They didn't ask them. And then all of a sudden the Dutch realized, this is our existence on the line here. Yeah. And then Rotterdam today is this sparkling modern city. Yeah, yeah. It's quite something. Teresa, how did you find the, the Dutch people? Because they, they have a, there's something unique about Dutch people. And, and your son's living there, so you would know. 
they're very direct, aren't they? they? And they pride themselves, it seems to me, on being direct. For example, we, when you walk into a business, there's none of them, hello, how are you? What, you know, welcome, what can I do for you? It's, what do you want? You know, and I appreciate that. I hired a guide for a couple of days, and we didn't really click. You know, it's like we didn't enjoy talking forever together. We were both working. And I took him out to dinner, and he actually said, you know, I understand you're tired and, and you don't need to talk to me. <laughs> he just, <laughs> he was that direct. He says, don't bother talking with me. You know, we're both just having dinner here. And uh, it was that kind of shocking directness. And I thought, that's very Dutch. It is very Dutch. That's right. Well, let's it's get a little a, bit getting used to yeah, it. Yeah, let's definitely. get Angelique's take on that. Do you, do, you, <laughs> do you consider this sort of directness a good thing or a rude thing? Well, I guess I'm used to it, and yes, I recognize what you've been saying, and especially now I'm here, and people are so nice and polite. And so you're traveling around the United <laughs> States, and you, you notice yes. there's a little bit of informality, and a little yes. more people are talkative and yes. make nice talk and so on. Yes, I notice the difference now, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I guess I'm used to it, and sometimes it's, it's fun and it's nice as well, because you really know what you're going to get. I like so, that. And it's yeah. just important for Americans to realize, don't take it personally. They're yes. going to tell you the truth. Yes, yes. You know, it's it's like here we have a, you know, in the bank, the, the teller is fined if they don't smile and wish everybody to have a nice day. Yes. Uh, I don't think the Dutch people are going to waste time with that. I don't think I heard that once. <laughs> have a nice day. <laughs> but you understand that the people are direct and honest and efficient. And uh, and I think good friends in the Netherlands are are honest, good friends. I think you're absolutely right. And you're, you're right. It is very refreshing not to have to chat someone up. That's right. Hey, Teresa, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye now. Angelique Mergler is our guide to Holland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Angus is on the line in Walnut Creek, California. Hi, Angus. Thanks for your call. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. My wife and I are planning a trip to the Netherlands where we've never been. Great. What are your plans there? Our daughter, she's attending the University of Maastricht for a semester, and we're going to be visiting her, but we're going to start in Amsterdam, where we'll be for several days, and we were looking for interesting ideas, not just in Amsterdam, but perhaps within a day or so. One particular that I wanted to ask about is, I've heard of the the town Arnhem. Please forgive me if I mispronounced the name of Mr. Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. I hear it's pronounced differently there. In, uh, yeah, how do you say? How do the Dutch pronounce Vincent Van Gogh? Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Yeah, Van Gogh. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's okay for us English speakers <laughs> to say Van Gogh, Angus. All right. So there's a wonderful Van Gogh museum outside of Arnhem in the Krollermuller Park, right? Krollermuller Park. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's in the forest. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's So, yeah, Angus, nice. if you like Van Gogh, uh, of course, there's the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, which is the best. Mm-hmm. But you've got this other great Van Gogh Museum in a park, and it's a beautiful experience because it's sort of close to nature, and it's quite mm-hmm. special. Yes, it's a natural park. It's a big forest, and uh, there was this family, Krulle Muller, who, um, who built this museum right in the forest, and they collected art and lots of art from that time period, and... So it's more than Van Gogh. It's yeah, sort of 20th it's, century art. Yeah, and it's really beautiful. And, and also right nearby is the Open Air Folk Museum. Yes, that's true. In Arnhem. And, yeah. and, and Angus, if you want to see traditional Dutch life, most of the tour groups and cruise groups and stuff, they go to Zanzashans, which is very commercial. And it's nice, but I would say the best two are the Open Air Folk Museum at Arnhem and the Zuiderzee Museum up in Enkhuizen. Yeah, yeah. And these are both an opportunity to walk through a windmill as it's working, to see how they made paper in the Middle Ages, to go to a little shop and uh, and see what it was like when the, the blacksmith would be walking around wearing wooden shoes. And it's just a fascinating look at traditional Dutch culture. It sounds wonderful. And another thing I wanted to ask about is we've just passed the 70th anniversary of the, the liberation of the Netherlands by the Allied forces during the war. And I know that there are a number of locations, I'm told, in the Arnhem area honoring some of the uh, American and British and Polish and other soldiers who uh, came through and, and drove the Nazis away at that time. Well, there's the Dam in Amsterdam that's very famous, and every year the Queen goes there and 
lays flowers and, and there's a minute of silence. But every city has got its monument where every year people go there and be yeah, silent. The main square in, in yeah. Amsterdam, the Dam Square. Yeah. And you know, Angus, something that I think is really impressive is the Dutch Resistance Museum in Amsterdam. And mm. uh, everybody goes to see Anne Frank as they should. But I would think the Dutch Resistance Museum is, is just as impactful and almost nobody is there. And there's a very heroic resistance to the Nazis. By the way, if you see the movie The Soldier of Orange before you go, it's a great look at the Dutch uh, heroism when they were occupied by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. I'll make a note and, and be sure to see that. Angus, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. I have, appreciate have it. Have a great trip. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Holland, which is sort of the historic core from a sightseer's point of view of the Netherlands. Our guest is Angelique Merkler, who lives in Delft, one of the cutest towns anywhere in Holland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Chris is calling in from Guilford in New Hampshire. Hi. I just wanted to share that my husband and I have been to the Netherlands twice. We did a house swap in 2000 in Rotterdam. And then we did a house swap in 2008 in a small section near Leiden. And uh, I just wanted to share what a wonderful experience it was. And I would highly recommend uh, the Netherlands as a place to visit, particularly if it's your first visit to Europe because it's such an easy area to get around and the people are just as warm as warm could be. I can't say enough about it. it they're just wonderful people. But you could have we, the same experience with, like, Airbnb or something like this. Yeah, you can. Yes, you can. And we have used, like, HomeAway, and it was just such a great experience because you get to experience a country in sort of a different, more intense sort of way. You know, just certain things, everyday yeah. things that you have to learn how to negotiate. What do you remember that was uniquely Dutch about eating uh, with your uh, home base there? Well, there were French fries with everything. Did you dip your French fries in mayonnaise? In mayonnaise. <laughs> now, that's a very Dutch thing to do, to resist yes, the urge for ketchup. Yes, but sometimes when you open, start talking, they realize that you're an American, and they, every now and then they might slip you some ketchup, but <laughs> basically it was mayonnaise. And little sandwiches, these beautiful Dutch and sandwiches. And little sandwiches. What's the name and for the Dutch, Dutch sandwich? pancakes. And Bruges, yeah, the Dutch pancakes. Bruges, yeah. The, the, you can get beautiful Dutch uh, cheese. Yeah. Yes, you can. On the sandwiches. And pancakes, not for breakfast, but for dinner. Yes, for dinner, and yeah. you can get savory or sweet. Angelique, what's a, a tip for uh, the, the pancakes? You need to know what to order for dinner for pancakes. <laughs> yes, you oh, do. Oh, <laughs> what people really like is pancakes with bacon or with cheese. That's so really These nice. are not sweet. These are savory. Yes, and it's really good. And you could add syrup on it, and it's really good. That's a beautiful thing. And there's no maple syrup. <laughs> no maple syrup? No maple syrup. So what did you use for syrup? It's um, kind of a molasses it is, a, it is, now that you mention it, that is a fine difference, isn't it? I, I'm always a little bit shocked by the syrup because I'm expecting maple syrup. Yeah. Well, I'm from the Northeast. We live off of maple syrup. Oh, yeah. Um, so, but it's going local. You, you're going local, and that's part of the, the fun experience of the whole thing is, is that you, you get to experience different, it opens you up, your eyes up to different possibilities. That's a beautiful thing about travel, and I really like going to, to Holland for that, in, in part because it's so easy to connect with the people, the, the culture is so accessible, but it is so distinct. And, you know, you'll run into, you know, a Dutch person, and, and you'll start, you know, you'll ask them if they speak English, because we don't speak Dutch, and uh, they'll say a little bit, and then they can hold a whole a major conversation with you. Yeah. So that's why I've told my friends when they go to Europe, go go to the Netherlands because you're not going to have any trouble communicating. Right. And the train system is so easy to understand. You know what I like about the trains, Chris, in the Netherlands and in Holland is you don't need to remember the schedule. If it's 20 minutes after, it's 20 minutes after every hour there'll be that departure. Oh, yeah. Typically, yeah. you know, if you're in Delft and you want to go to Amsterdam, there'll be a train at 10 minutes after, 30 minutes after, and 50 minutes after every hour all mm. day long. Mm. And punctual. And punctual, that's right. Chris, thanks so much for your call. Well, thank you. Happy travels. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Angelique Merkler about Holland. Not the Netherlands, but Holland. And Angelique, we've established that Holland is the two biggest states, North and South Holland, in the 12 provinces of the Netherlands. Yes. And as a person who is <clears throat> Dutch and who is a Hollander, mm -hmm. living in Delft, a cute, mm -hmm. probably the cutest town I know in Holland, mm -hmm. do you have a pride <clears throat> for being in Holland as opposed to the Netherlands. What is your thinking that, in that way? 
Well, it's interesting that you ask that because the rest of the Netherlands think of it as a very big difference between the, the, the Holland people and the Dutch people. We tend to be even more direct and more stressed out than the rest of the Netherlands and especially the people in the south in they they, they really think that uh, the people from Holland are very different so so you said direct that's we were talking about dutch people are more direct they don't waste words exactly yes but you said stressed out what do you mean by that more well, business like more yes. fast moving yes exactly yeah yeah oh. yeah yeah There's, most people work in the west in the big cities so yeah, they tend to be more stressed so out. They're, so they're harder working. They say yes. in Rotterdam, which is the biggest city in, in Holland, yeah. the shirts are sold with the sleeves already rolled up. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so you're ready to work. <laughs> and then you probably think of the people in the far north of Holland as, conversely, more slow and more less industrious. Yes, that's, yeah. people, they really feel that difference as well. When you go out for a weekend, you go to the east or the north and... You really notice that the and people... And as a Hollander, are, you're kind of going, come on, yeah, let's move yeah, this along. Yeah, when you're in the supermarket, people start to talk to each other, and in the West, people are really fast, and everything's more... So you're kind of the Germans <clears throat> of Holland. Oh, you're kind of the yeah. Germans of the Netherlands. <laughs> Maybe that's... <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> the, the industrious, fast-moving, practical people. Yeah, it's of, a bit like that. What yeah. are you most proud of as uh, a Dutch person? What I'm most proud of, yeah, I think the tolerance and, and the, the fact that it... It was the first republic on earth, and it inspired the French Revolution, and later it inspired the American Revolution. So, things like that. That's right. Really you were the first republic on earth. You broke away from the Spanish king to establish a government that wasn't going to be beholden to the Catholic Church or any king. No popes, no kings, a modern republic. It's unique. Run by hardworking business people. Yes, and one prince who was very brave and lived in Delft. <laughs> Angelique, this has been very interesting for me, and I, I think our listeners too. Thank you for giving us a better understanding of Holland as distinct from the Netherlands. I guess I should say, Dank u wel. Alstublieft. <laughs> How many miles will you travel with me? One mile or two miles, maybe three. We'll make a stop wherever we choose. We'll get Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again on demand and find guest information and the details for each week's show. It's updated each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. See you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Istanbul, Athens, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.